Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic child and adult psychiatrist. In today's episode, I'll be discussing electromagnetic hypersensitivity, or EHS. This is a condition recognized by the CDC. Those who have EHS, knowingly or unknowingly, are having adverse health effects while using or being in the vicinity of devices that are emanating EMF or electromagnetic fields. So this could be, for example, a cell phone, a smart device, but it could also be electrical wiring or particular motors in one's home. In Europe, it is believed to affect 5 to 10% of the population. It is estimated that in the U.S., 3% of the population are highly sensitive and up to 35% are moderately sensitive. Those percentages are, however, expected to rise with the increasing use of wireless technology, including 5G. And this is not a new understanding. It was first seen in military personnel in the 1940s. And since that time, there's been a great deal of research not only into EHS, or electromagnetic hypersensitivity, but also into the collective health impacts of EMF. Obviously, this is not welcome information, given how increasingly ubiquitous these devices are. So what is EMF exactly? And think about EMF as existing on a spectrum. So these electromagnetic fields On the far right are X-rays and gamma rays, and this is considered ionizing radiation. And most people are familiar with the negative health impacts with those. But as you move to the left, there are what are called non-ionizing radiation, and this includes four specific types of EMF that we think about when it comes to electromagnetic hypersensitivity. One of those is, and I would say the most problematic, is radio frequencies. And these are frequencies that are coming off wireless or smart devices, Wi-Fi. Others include electric fields, and this would be electrical appliances, wiring in one's home. There's magnetic fields, thirdly, and this is something that comes also off wires in homes, but is from motors in cars, air conditioning units, and other appliances in one's home. The fourth type of EMF that we talk about are called dirty electricity, and this is where there's a mingling of different types of magnetic fields that are coming together. These would be especially evident with dimmers in people's homes. Uh, There's also ways that we can be getting dirty electricity through the utility company or even through some of the activities that our neighbors have if we happen to live fairly close to neighbors. So before I talk about symptoms, know that we as human beings are electrical beings. We have impulses that travel through nerve tissue that help our brains work, that help our muscles contract, and to help our heart beat. This is exactly why things like pacemakers exist, to help when there's a faulty electric activity going on in the heart. This is also why when someone codes, 
for example, they have their heart stops beating, we use electricity to reactivate their heartbeat. This is also why when in determining whether someone is alive or not, electrical activity in the brain is measured. So we have a natural electric field, just as the earth has a natural electric field, as does the sun. Some electromagnetic fields actually resonate with particular tissues in our body. In fact, this can be used for different therapies, including cancer therapy. But most of the EMF that we're exposed to, and that I'm going to be talking about today, is that type of EMF that can impact our innate electrical activity in our body and in our brain, and thus creates symptoms and health consequences. So our brains and nervous tissue, again, require the optimal functioning of our electric system. Electrical impulses travel down nerve cells by way of what are called voltage-gated ion channels. And so these are basically channels that open and close and are impacted by voltage, so by this electric activity within our body. And this opening and closing is what allows sodium and potassium ions to move in and out of the nerve cell, thus creating a wave that travels down the cell and sends these electric impulses. However, again, when this is being interfered with, there can be a number of symptoms. So to start with brain-related symptoms, insomnia is one, memory problems, irritability, depression, personality changes, problems with attention or brain fog, fatigue. There can even be disorientation and confusion. Some neurologic symptoms include headache, ringing in the ears, dizziness, numbness, and or tingling in the body. Now, someone doesn't have to have all of these to be experiencing a level of electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Physical symptoms can include skin-related symptoms such as stinging or burning sensation, itching or redness or what we call rosacea. Cardiovascular symptoms can include heart palpitations and swelling of the hands and or feet, and this relates to dilation of the veins. Gastrointestinal symptoms can include nausea, EHS, or electromagnetic hypersensitivity, is a chronic condition, and symptoms are reproducible with repeated exposure. There are ways when I talk about diagnosis that this can be evaluated. Children of all ages can be impacted, and in fact, children are considered the most vulnerable to developing EHS. Their skulls happen to be thinner They are smaller and will absorb more electromagnetic fields. Their brains have more water content, which also impacts their exposure. They will have longer exposure because they're younger, so they have a longer future ahead of them. And their bodies are still developing, so their development can be impacted. ADHD-type symptoms, speech delays, and memory problems are see in children. Also vulnerable are those who have difficulty detoxifying. There are particular SNPs or polymorphisms. These are variants on particular genes that seem to make someone more vulnerable. For example, having 
two polymorphisms for MTHFR C677T could certainly raise someone's vulnerability. So those, again, who may not be detoxifying well would be more vulnerable. Other particular settings where there could be increased vulnerability could be teachers and students, especially now with students using devices in the classroom. Also, hospitals are increasingly using wireless technology. There are particular conditions that raise one's vulnerability to electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Multiple chemical sensitivity, and this is where someone's reacting to various chemicals in their environment. And again, this would be someone who is dealing with a lot of toxins on board and their body is sending messages to their brain and immune system that they those need to be avoided. So they become reactive even to the tide as they're walking down the aisle at Target, for example. Mast cell activation is part of this process where someone has a heightened immune reactivity and can be reacting to many things in their environment, to weather changes, to particular foods or supplements, and even to varying levels of stress. They have found that those with electromagnetic hypersensitivity do have a higher concentration of mast cells in the skin of their face and neck. Again, it it's, seems that their body has become prime for an immune response. Mold toxicity and metal toxicity also, not unlike chemical toxicity, appear to raise one's vulnerability to developing EHS. Chronic Lyme could also do this as well. So electromagnetic fields specifically impact nerve cells, cardiac cells, sperm cells, blood cells, and immune cells. But specifically, I'd like to talk about how they disrupt brain activity. And they do this in a number of ways. And again, remember, they're disrupting those voltage-gated channels that make nerve cells work. They also are disrupting the blood-brain barrier, which causes increased permeability between the bloodstream that moves throughout the body and the brain. So that means more chemical and metal and other toxins can get into the brain. They also cause a decrease in neurotransmitters, a decrease in brain cells, specifically in the hippocampal area, which is the part of the brain that impacts memory. They can cause demyelination, and this is a loss of the protective covering of the nerve cells, which impacts how quickly a nerve impulse will fire. They can damage DNA, they can decrease melatonin in the brain, and they can increase cortisol levels. EMF can impact the structure of the brain, as well as chemical communication and electrical communication in the brain. They are considered, as the toxins that I mentioned, a source of oxidative stress. And this is where the toxic load on the body is creating an excessive amount of free radicals that is overwhelming our body's ability to address that. So our body has antioxidants that are responsible for meeting this oxidative stress load. But when it's overwhelmed because there's too much of these free radicals, then somebody has what we call oxidative stress. And that can create a number of the issues that I just talked about. 
So how do we diagnose EHS? First, a detailed history and a timeline, and inquiring about the onset of exposure, for example, to smart meters, which have come to people's homes in recent years. Perhaps someone had wired computers. At what point did they start using Wi-Fi and wireless? At what point did they get a cell phone? Really plot things out as well as looking for sources of those other toxicities. When did somebody have water damage and how does that align? Because again, mold toxicity is a very common precursor or something that happens before someone may go on to develop electromagnetic hypersensitivity. So there's not a gold standard for diagnosing EHS except for elimination and reintroduction. So what this means is to have someone lower their exposure as much as is possible. This could be turning off as much of the devices and electricity in one's home. It could be having them do their work outside on their patio, unless they happen to be getting exposure out there. So to do as much as they can to lower exposure, which I'll talk a little bit more about, and then to see how their symptoms are, and what happens when they are reintroduced to the exposure. There are some biomarkers, meaning specific lab tests, that may be helpful, though are not necessarily practical, or in my opinion needed, if someone can, again, lower their exposure enough and then do a reintroduction. So these would include things like a salivary cortisol level after an exposure, blood sugar level, which is expected to go up after an exposure, blood pressure and heart rate monitor. This could be like a 24-hour Holter monitor. And this helps in part because the autonomic nervous system, that fight-or-flight response, can be triggered by electromagnetic fields, especially in those who are sensitive. So if when exposed, their blood pressure and heart rate are going up, then that could suggest they have electromagnetic hypersensitivity. This is not something that's typically done in office settings. There's ethical arguments about exposing someone while you're taking these measurements. There are some clinicians who will use these markers after someone has had their own exposure, not necessarily given an exposure. Some clinicians will look for specific detoxification polymorphisms that I mentioned, and there is some imaging that can show hypoperfusion or what is a decreased blood flow to particular parts of the brain. Treatment, as expected, would be to lower one's exposure. This can be quite complicated. As I mentioned, there are four types of EMF, and so the first type just being radiofrequencies could mean disabling someone's router or turning it into a modem that all the computers in the home are wired to directly so that there's no wireless communication going on in the home. So if someone has smart devices, that could mean, for example, with a smart meter calling the electric company and having them turn off the smart meter and having someone come out and read the manual meter every month. This could also mean turning off things like ring doorbells or security systems that are operating on Wi-Fi, sprinkler systems, thermostats, even speakers in the house. So the list goes on and 
as I mentioned, there's more and more smart technology, so there's more things that people need to think about. But that would be the radio frequencies. Building biologists can help in all these areas, but they can help with identifying if there are electrical issues in the home that are creating these high radio frequencies, but also high magnetic, electric, and dirty electricity. This, as I said, can become quite complicated, and how far someone needs to go can really depend on the severity of their sensitivity and of their symptoms. There are also basic lifestyle interventions to promote a strong foundation in terms of the body, so good hydration, fresh air, a nutritious diet, exercise. Grounding is something that, interestingly, there is some debate about the effects of this. So basically the magnetic field of the earth can be very beneficial to us. And walking barefoot, for example, in the grass, we can benefit from the earth's magnetic field. There are also uh, products that are sold that you can plug into the outlet, and basically that single hole in an outlet is where a grounding piece of a cord is going into. Grounding products basically are taking advantage of that. The reason there's debate about these particular products is because how beneficial the ground is really depends on what's going on below, for example, your house. So some people may not have a particularly good ground with which to ground from, and using grounding devices could actually be creating adverse magnetic fields as electromagnetic fields, as opposed to the beneficial ground of the earth. Typically, other interventions are needed. This may involve detoxification of mold toxins, metal toxins. This can involve a a number of other treatment interventions, but it's important to know that for anyone with this, the expectation, if they lower their exposure, would be partial or complete remission. Supplements that can be helpful are things like magnesium, melatonin, trace minerals, There is benefit from doing magnesium salt foot baths. The specific treatment plan that someone can benefit from depends largely in part on how many other variables are at play. The other important aspect of treatment is addressing the limbic system. So the limbic system is the part of the brain that is where we perceive threat in our environment or even in our body. If the limbic system has become extremely reactive, that can in itself cause things like mast cell activation or an exaggerated immune response. So there are interventions like the dynamic neural retraining system or the Gupta program, which specifically address the limbic system. Also important to address is the autonomic nervous system. So this is when you hear about fight or flight or rest and digest. These are neurologic functions that are happening largely outside our awareness. The vagus nerve is part of that, and that's considered the parasympathetic part. And the sympathetic part is that fight or flight aspect. So the more that one can learn to access the vagus nerve 
and achieve that rest and digest state and really train their body, the less vulnerable they'll be to exaggerated physiologic responses. That being said about the limbic system and about the autonomic nervous system, it is still recommended that someone lower their exposure if they have had adverse uh, symptoms or health consequences as a result of EMF. Even if you do not have a sensitivity to electromagnetic fields, you still might consider lowering your own exposure, especially to radio frequencies or what we call wireless devices. At night, you might consider turning off your router and your cell phone. You can avoid having your cell phone on in the car. Those frequencies will basically be bouncing around in the inside of a metal box when you're in your car, so they get magnified. And you can also use your speaker instead of holding the cell phone to your head when you're speaking on it. You can keep it in a protective pouch and keep it away from your body. Phone companies, actually, if you read the fine print, say that the cell phone should not be in contact with the body. It should be at least a fourth of an inch from the brain or body. If you're carrying it in your pocket, that's closer than would be suggested. And if you're holding it to your ear, that would be as well. So even though they show people in their ads holding the phone to their ear or putting it in their bra or putting it in their pocket, that actually goes against the uh, recommendations in the fine print based on the research they did with EMF exposures to cell phone users. You can also consider wiring your computer. And I will share in the description for this podcast the links to some resources that can tell you how to set up your office space and how to create what we call a sleep sanctuary. Because when we're sleeping, that's when we're spending the most time in a specific environment and when we would be most vulnerable. So if we can at the very least, limit our exposure during that time and more ideally also in our office or study spaces, then that can take a big chunk out of our exposure. So I hope this was helpful and I hope it raises your awareness. I hesitate with these topics because for some people they can create fear and avoidance and I think There are healthy and intelligent ways to avoid some of our exposure without having to live in fear. Again, if you are someone who has struggled with this or thinks that you might struggle with this, there are excellent resources out there, some of which I'll share. And slowly but surely, there are physicians who are learning about this area and understanding how to treat and how to look at and address those underlying causes. This information could be helpful for many people with brain-related symptoms who may be impacted, but it can also be very helpful to parents of young children or families who are expecting children as there are increasingly devices and tablets that are used with infants and toddlers and they are getting the earliest exposure, and again, they would be the most vulnerable, thus the most likely to go on and to develop some of these problems. So I do hope this was helpful for you, your family, someone you know, 
and I look forward to connecting with you again in a future podcast. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.